What's going on guys? Welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Band Chats. My name is John Kroom and if you haven't already, please make sure you hit that subscribe button, leave us a review because we are posting episodes every Tuesday at around noon Mountain Standard Time and we would love to see you keep coming back and listening to all these crazy things that we have going on. I have a lot of cool guests in the pipeline and yeah, so let's dive into this week's episode. On this week's episode, we chat with Jess Sarah. Jess is an ex-pro cyclist, and, and honestly, I would like to say still a current pro cyclist, uh, but she races gravel and adventure racing now, and yeah, she's even putting on her new ride, which is the last best ride, so be sure to check that out. That's going to go on in Whitefish, Montana on August 22nd of 2021, pandemic pending, so um, yeah, please, please be on the lookout for that and, and be sure to support that. But uh, we chat with Jess just about her pro career, how she got into the sport of cycling, and how she even fell in love with gravel and why she even wanted to keep continuing. So uh, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. And yeah, let's dive into it. Hey guys, sorry for the brief interruption. I just want to give a huge shout out to this week's sponsor, and that is Bike Hardcore. I'm tired of seeing you guys come on rides with dirty bikes. So go check out Bike Hardcore at bikehardcore.com and make sure you use promo code CROOM. You get 10% off at checkout. Also, you can check out the link in the description below to see all the cool products they have. They have this like motorized pump thing that you connect to your hose and it'll spray down your bike. It's like giving your bike a shower. I mean, we take a shower every day. We might as well give our bike a shower at least every day with Bike Hardcore. Um, they even also have this cool limited edition pumpkin spice chain lube that came out and if it's anything like their chain butter which kind of smells like butter it probably smells like pumpkin spice so be sure to check that out at bikehardcore.com make sure you use promo code croom at checkout hey guys how's it going welcome back to another episode of coffee and van chats i'm sitting here with jess sarah and yeah how are you doing jess you're in montana right now I am great. I'm actually in Encinitas, California right now, which has been my home base for a while. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But you were you were you were hanging out in Montana for like a little bit of quarantine, just trying to get away from everybody and stay safe for the most part, right? I was. I'm very lucky to <laughs> um, be from Whitefish. Yeah. Which is a little gem that I think a lot of people discovered this year um, yeah. for quarantine. But uh, we are moving up there next year permanently. Huh. Sweet, so I'm enjoying my last winter um, of 60 to 70 degrees. <laughs> yeah. When does it start to turn in Montana? It turned. It turns really quickly sometimes. I, they're already skiing on the mountain. The mountains oh, are open, but oh, there's, yeah. There's that's, like, that's like Christmas decorations before Thanksgiving for me. Yeah. No, yeah. thank you. Um, but yeah, so let's, let's dive into a little bit about you. Like I know you from your professional cycling days. Actually, that's probably not true. I really know you now from your privateer days, but I knew you as this professional badass road for Hoggins Berman road for, uh, I guess, 2016 at the time. Um, kind of let's dive into where that all started. Uh, you have like a triathlete mountain bike background, and then you just kind of fell into this professional career. So let's kind of just talk about how that even happens. Where does that even start? Well, it's really interesting. I, I think about this a lot. If I had known what professional road racing was as a kid growing up, yeah, that maybe I would have found the sport sooner. And I would say I always gravitated towards bikes. Like my mom got me a bike when I was in 
first grade and I basically just knew how to ride it instantly. And we would ride around the neighborhoods and back roads and I'd always ride away from her and want to ride for hours and hours. So the connection was there, but I didn't really find bikes as a form of recreation, you know, sort of formally until grad school. So it was a little bit, a little bit later in life. I moved to San Diego for grad school. And when I moved here, obviously this is a huge cycling and triathlon mecca. So I saw bikes and I think like any little girl coming from Montana to San Diego, you're instantly just like, whoa, beaches, palm trees, like everyone's outside. And so you have this curiosity. And for some reason it was bikes that really stoked that curiosity for me. For sure. So so you get into so you get into cycling and see like how is it that you decide that you're gonna go do your first race like when is it that you're like all right i'm gonna do my first road race and how did that go for you so just to give you the quick backstory to that in grad school one of my professors um simon marshall dr simon marshall he is married to Leslie Patterson, who is a three-time Xterra world champion, Xterra ITU champion. And when I was getting into cycling, I started kind of in mountain biking with a group um, that was led by one of my other professors. And so I just kind of fell under the wings of all these people who were into cycling and triathlon. I had seen pictures of Leslie and Simon's office And I would kind of like go in there to ask him questions so I could kind of spy on her pictures because I was intrigued. And I asked him for an introduction so I could meet a coach, meet someone to teach me what the heck I'm doing. And Leslie and I had an instant connection and we became really, really good friends. And that led me into racing Xterra with her at first. And Xterra led to mountain bikes, obviously. And it wasn't until around 2011, after I had won the Xterra Amateur National Championship, that I started experiencing problems with my leg. And I went through this really hard journey of having um, iliac artery endofibrosis diagnosed in my right leg. So that led me- so what, for the listeners that may not know, like even me who doesn't really know what that is, what is that? So iliac artery endofibrosis is the condition that you hear happens in cycling and triathlon. And there really isn't a clear, I don't know, there isn't a clear reason why it happens in some athletes and not other athletes. Joe Dombrowski would probably be the person that most people would recognize having that issue and that surgery. Jacob Rathi also had it. There's some women, um, Emma Grant had it. So it's essentially when your psoas muscle gets really big from hip flexion and pedaling a lot, it rests next to your external iliac artery. And with this condition, as it presses on that artery, the response is a protective mechanism of hardening and then closing and sometimes kinking over. Oh, wow. So that was happening in my right leg and it took so long for me to get it diagnosed that it was over 90% occluded by the time they figured out what was going on. And it was the point where for me, from an athletic standpoint, I was still so fresh that there was no way I wasn't gonna have it repaired. But just from like a daily standpoint, even walking upstairs, my right leg was going numb, my foot was going numb and I was tripping and 
I'd have that drop foot. So it was like a no brainer. It wasn't life threatening, but it was something that I didn't want to live with. Oh yeah. That sounds awful. Yeah. And I ended up actually having the same surgery in my left leg, um, in 2015, but just jumping to that, I had the surgery and was going through rehab and pretty much was using road cycling as an easier way to recover. It's just less intense than being out on the trails. Yeah. And I'd like to do the group rides in San Diego. And if anyone knows the group rides here, they're notorious for being really like hard and people come into town to ride these group rides and train and just kind of. That's California for you. Yeah. That's California. Yeah. Yeah. It's not abnormal to show up to a group ride with 120 people and you're just, whoa, okay. Yeah. So that, I just kind of made connections with really a lot of the guys here. Um, I wish this was a story of, you know, this group of women got me into road racing, but it's just not the reality. It was always me and a hundred dudes and, but they were really great. And it was suggested that I try road racing and I went and did uh, Cascade Cycling Classic was my first big race. I had raced a ton of local races around here and I was so motivated. I would usually go and ride the women's race, try to ride off the front of the women's race, win that, grab my number, pin it over the women's number and ride in the men's field too for as long as I could. So wow. I was just like a crazy obsessed person. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and for people, for people that don't know the Cascade Cycling Classic, that's in Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. That's that, that was, crazy. It's, it's, it's got tons of climbing. It's a hard road race. I mean, that's like, I mean, that's like, it's comparing, it's not even, I was going to say apples to oranges, but it's like, I don't even think they're both fruit at that point. Like there's some races out there that you really just can't compare them to anything. And that that's a hard bike race. Yeah. And people may not know that Cascade used to be so big because it's really, it's changed like yeah. road racing is where they were having to limit the field sizes. Yeah. So the first year I did it, I think there was 124 women racing and it was eight, eight UCI women's teams. And I was a cat too. Wow. And I thought, I thought I was like the thing, you know, because yeah. locally that's kind of the, the pattern that I had established. But when I got there, I realized, whoa, I am a very small fish and also I felt super out of place. Like it just wasn't the same environment as mountain biking at all. Yeah. I was expecting to hang out with everyone and like crack an IPA after the race. No, that was not the vibe in road racing. And I, I learned that really quickly. And I would say every day I went into each stage completely terrified and wanting to quit. And then at the end of the day, I couldn't wait for the next stage. So when I left there, I had a really good result. Have you ever done the race when it used to go over McKenzie Pass on the long no. side of the rainforest? So luckily, I've never done Cascade. Uh, <laughs> it's way out of my element. So I had never been forced there. The only stage races that I've had to, I was forced to go to. Joe Martin. And then I was told that I had to go to Gila, but I never went. <laughs> okay. Yeah, for a track light, I'm not really sure Gila would be no. that fun for you. No. <laughs> No, Joe Martin's you. pretty cool though. Joe Martin was all right. Yeah. Joe Martin was it's right. like a nice middle ground for, yeah. there's a little bit for everybody at that. Race. But I have, I have ridden McKenzie's path. So, you know, it's just a insanely long climb yep. for a stage race. And I yep. made the break with 
the winning break that day of all the riders who ended up in all the jerseys. And I, my <laughs> composite team car was like team car 14 and I didn't have any water. And I also didn't know what going to the caravan meant or going to a car. And I begged for water off of one of the directors in a car by watching someone else do it. So pretty much I just had this random result and I had a good result there. And that, that helped me, it gave me confidence and it also let people know what my name is. And going into the next season, I was riding for a local team down here when Spy Sunglasses, they were oh, doing yeah. a lot of sponsoring and cycling. And Michael Marks, who's the founder of BWR, he yeah. was working there. And he kind of created this women's team with a budget that allowed us to go to races like Redlands and big races, go out to the national championship. And really it was that year and that team that put me on the national stage. And by the time I started approaching teams and asking directors if I could send resumes, I was getting the answer of, you're already on the top of our list. Wow. And so it was, I was very fortunate that I was able to sort of choose, where am I gonna go? And 2016 appealed to me because they were an Olympic development team, are an Olympic development team. And they had a spot available on the national team for the 2015 season. Yeah, And so I chose that team and only to immediately have this issue with my left leg in the beginning of that uh, season. Okay. So it was a bummer and I just wasn't mature enough um, on the mental and emotional side of cycling to understand how to recover from an injury properly. And it led yeah. me down a couple really hard years, honestly. Um, so that it wasn't the most glamorous start to my professional career, but it led me to find a spot on Hoggins Berman and learn how to be a team captain and, you know, a rider on the road that had other skills other than winning races. And I think that was part of the reason the Hoggins Berman team was known for what we were known for, other than being crazy aggressive and attacking and, always having our meetings with Tad, our director, the meeting went like this. Okay, so he'd throw something in the air and he'd be like, the wind is coming from here and we're gonna attack a lot today. So it was just like, <laughs> like yeah. here's the wind and here's where we're attacking. Uh, so I just was able to be on a team that was aggressive and that we, we meshed together from a team standpoint, which yeah. anyone who's ever raced on a team understands that that's something that is really hard to manufacture. It kind yeah. of either happens or it doesn't. And it stems from leadership, but it also stems from the riders. Yeah. So it was a, a great experience. Yeah. And so during all this time of you trying to be pro and, and everything else, you're starting your own company too, right? With JoJ Bar. And so let's talk about a little bit about, you know, where that stems from and how you even become Chef Jess? Like, is it, did you go to school? Did you go to culinary school? Like, where does this come from? My background is in exercise physiology. Okay. So I moved to San Diego specifically to go to the program at San Diego State, the exercise physiology and nutrition masters. I ended up dropping the nutrition portion of the masters because I became so involved with my research that I knew I wanted to do a PhD and I was in environmental studies. So I was looking at 
how heat adaptation, you know, caused physiological responses. And so that was my background. I was also working at UCSD during school and I was teaching the exercise physiology lab for undergrad students. And it just kind of, on one end, it kind of led me to burnout on the education side, but on the UCSD side, I was getting into these health programs and learning more about nutrition. And I actually met a nutritionist who was a chef and I would help her with parties and catering and ended up taking over her private clients when she moved away from San Diego. And so I had this weird sort of transition into being a private chef with absolutely no chef training, no culinary school, but an understanding of what healthy, good food was. And I found that niche and I ended up catering some camps for triathlete magazine which led me to being a content creator for that publication for women's running and then i was introduced to cervello and i worked with them for five years with all of their big events i would go to the ironman world championships and during this time this was back when energy bars were this huge hunk of carbohydrates that were really hard to chew and really hard to digest And it's kind of funny to think that now because we have so many options and so many really good options. But at this point in time, I was like, would much rather go to a bakery and get a cookie than eat an energy bar. And I thought there has to be something that can tie these two things together. This is missing. And I started creating my own bars in a pan at home. And because I had the exercise physiology background and I understood how to review research and what research was actually good research, I knew the trend was going to be to take energy bars to a higher fat content and sort of like mix the two fuels that you need when you're doing an endurance sport. And I think I caught on to something really quickly and people were eating it and saying, I feel great and I'm not getting uh, GI distress. And so it was sort of like this, your bar tastes like a cookie, but it also makes me feel great. And before I knew it, I had this business and I had to take it into, I didn't actually get a commercial kitchen. I found a co-packing facility to make the product for me. Okay. And that was a huge jump. And it's kind of like when you're doing something and you're watching yourself from above, (laughs) I still feel that way. Like, is this actually going to work? And it's just been like that for years. It's just like, it's taken the next step, moving into REI, having better e-commerce sales. And I'm just, I'm learning so much about business and sales and marketing and how to have a company that I feel proud of and that can, you know, make a difference, whether it's from a community standpoint or sustainability standpoint. So that is how JoJ Bar was born. Well, so you know, not only are you learning all this stuff, but I mean, just as a bike racer, we all got hit with the, uh, the pandemic. What was it like getting, and I mean, if, if you guys have been listening to any of these podcasts, you hear athletes tell their story and how the pandemics affected them. We don't talk to very many companies. How, how has that been? Like, that's been an experience just like me Mm -hmm. as my own little small business. I'm not an REI though. So like, I don't really know how that affects, but what, What was that like? Well, I'm going to give you the most transparent answer here too. And I've been so transparent with our customers. And I think some people 
would say maybe that's not the best tactic, but I feel a connection to most of our customers because we're so small still. For sure. Right before the pandemic, actually, last year, the night before Thanksgiving, I received an email from our first co-packer in San Diego, right down the road from us. Small co-packer was with them for three years. And the email went like this. We've sold our kitchen to a cannabis edibles company and you need to have all your stuff out by December 28th. So I immediately contacted other small companies that I knew worked in this co-packer. We had all gotten the same form of communication, not a phone call, an email. And just so you know, in the food world, nothing happens within anything less than four to six months. I mean, it's like a lot of things. So to be told we're losing our kitchen right around the holidays, it was a, it was a big, big deal for us. And luckily I had established a relationship through a trade show with another co-packing facility that had offered to test making our product. And it was going to be a big jump to move to that facility, but I immediately contacted them. Of course I had to wait the four days over the Thanksgiving holiday, freaking out and stressing out the whole time. And I got in touch with them and we started testing the product over the winter and had decided to do our first real production run kind of in the beginning to middle of March, it must have been. And that kitchen is in Washington state and they were, they were forced to close because of COVID regulations. I think two days before we were supposed to do our production run. So we went into COVID already behind yeah. and already struggling. And the amazing thing about our customers is I could communicate with them over email. And then our larger customers like thefeed.com, which is a subscription box out of Boulder. Yeah. I could have a conversation with the, the president of that company and he understood what was going on. And I even had these conversations with REI and they were, they were wonderful. Okay, well this happens to companies or recalls happen, but then we go into COVID and the kitchen closes and it really hurt us. We were out of inventory for a long time. And I think that the online retailers were thriving and customers like REI had to shut down their stores. And so it was hurting them too. Luckily, they're a company with a really strong financial model and a good plan for their employees and their co-op. And so it was kind of around the same time that we got cranking again, that they started opening up their doors and figuring out how they were going to operate. So we went through this huge dip. And then when we got our product made in May, finally, we had the best month of sales that we've ever had in the history of JoJ Bar. And I've been able to keep it really consistent since then. So I feel like COVID was the most challenging thing I've ever been through because no one knew how to navigate it. It's not like you're dealing with it on like three different fronts. Like you're dealing with it as an athlete you're dealing with it as a person, you're dealing with it as a businesswoman, like, mm-hmm. that's, that's a lot. You know, to that point, actually, probably, not probably, I know it helped me from the athlete side. Yeah. 
I listened to uh, another podcast talking about what the hardest thing about COVID is for athletes and it's uncertainty in general for athletes that causes the most psychological stress. I hardly even had time to focus on the uncertainty in my athletic life. And I probably should have been really scared because I had just made a transition from road racing on a team that was kind of, it provided security to now I'm a privateer where I need to hustle every day. And really, I just had to dive into my business. And it's kind of been that way throughout my career. I've had some injuries and some setbacks, and it's been that business side that has saved me. And so that's usually the advice I always give to young people, whether it's men or women, collegiate riders, focus on something else and make, make yourself balanced because you don't realize like sometimes you can get in a rut thinking like, Oh, if I didn't have to work or if I didn't have to do this, I would be X, Y, or Z, or I'd be better. But I think really your professional life, is what helps balance you out and makes you a better athlete in the long run. Well, I think, I think that's like the pro athlete, the human, you know, just the person in us and then the business side in us, like, especially as privateers, like, you know, if one door gets shut, we're like already knocking on another door. And even if that door's still open, we're still knocking on other doors because we're trying to have a lot of things, a lot of options because like, it's funny, we, you know, we, I was talking with my wife. My wife was like, I don't know how you do it. Your income stays about the same every month, but you have like two or three different people paying you every <laughs> month. And it's just like, it's like, yeah, well, like the, the way it works is, is, you know, like I'm talking to that guy six months ago and he decides to lock down this and that six month contract is, you know, now up and it just kind of folds itself into each other. But like, you're consistently working, right? You're consistently hustling. And so like, that's kind of the way I looked at the pandemic, like as an athlete from not going to the Olympics or, you know, not making it to that next level. It, it was the moment that I could, you know, take, take a step back. I could still train. I could still, still be an athlete. Um, like that wasn't taken away from me, but I could literally focus on all these other things too, to keep me busy. And I think, I think that's what makes a lot of us good athletes. And I think, that's what also makes good businesses is because like when one thing is on pause, you're like immediately like trying to kickstart something else, you know, but yeah. speaking of kickstarting and speaking about, you know, getting into something else, um, especially during a pandemic with all these events getting canceled, you and Sam, Sam Boardman, you're, is, is your fiance or is it boyfriend or what is boyfriend. it? Boyfriend. Okay. I'll, I'll say fiance. I'm just kidding. No boy. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you guys are going to start a race in Montana called the last best ride, right? We are sweet. So where did that come about? Because I feel like it's a gutsy move to be like, you know what? You guys are having pandemic issues. We're going to start a race, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so like what, where did that come from? What's your thoughts on this? Well, it's funny that you just, you know, told your story that's so yeah. powerful. Like, okay, you missed out on the chance to go to the Olympics and you're not even, ups- like, it doesn't even seem like you're upset. You're just like, okay, well now well, I focus on this hustle over here. Homegirl, that was like, I don't know, there's like 20 podcasts ago where I was I dealing know. with that. You know what I mean? Like at this no. point, we're on to the next one. Like I'm, I'm looking at 2024, I'm looking at other events. That's kind of like when we were complaining about, um, you know, DK being canceled or Leadville being canceled at this point, it's just like, 
Yeah. You can tell me that DK is probably not going to happen next year, and I'm I'm mentally prepared. You but know? I love the attitude, and yeah. I think that me that's exactly where we're coming from. Is that first off, we don't want to be cocky and be like we're ha- we're having this event next year, no matter yeah. what. Of course, we we hope for that. For sure, I've made our messaging very clear that Sam and I are not messing around with COVID, and. Yeah especially with the community of whitefish is so small. And if you're paying attention to national COVID news, it's no secret that whitefish got hit really hard over Labor Day. And yep. it's a good example of what happens when a lot of people go to a small town and the trickle effect of what happens. So we, we want everyone to know that while we're hopeful and we're going into this with open hearts because we really want this event to happen, if, if it's not safe, then we'll be able to cancel or defer. Now, how lucky are we? Because think about going into this year and having an event in March or April, and you're, again, there's no playbook. So yeah. at least we have the opportunity up front. But the what inspired the event is just spending the summer up in Whitefish, and Sam and I have never had a chance just to relax and enjoy riding. I'm always yeah. training for Colorado Classic. He's always training for Tour of Utah or something crazy. So it's not like we're not enjoying bikes or riding, but we're kind of on our own programs and it's all very much like specific training. business end of things. Yeah. yeah, very specific. And so this year, Sam got a gravel bike and the gravel riding and the mountain biking in Whitefish is insane. And yeah. the infrastructure for that is growing every single year. And really the road riding is average to good I would say but the the gravel riding we didn't even realize how insane it was because you have to be careful you can't go out and ride a lot of roads by yourself out there you probably shouldn't there's wildlife there's grizzly bears and so we took the opportunity to explore that together and we untapped some areas that kind of blew our minds and what what I kept thinking is I went to last year I went out to Rooted, Vermont, which is Ted and Laura King's event um, out in Richmond, yeah. Vermont, and highly recommend that event to anybody, especially anybody getting into gravel, because it has this inclusive community vibe, and I was making this like sneaky transition, and that event really sold me on gravel, but it also reminded me so much of Whitefish. And it kind of put the idea in my head, why don't we have a big gravel race in Whitefish? And who, who's going to start it? Well, I was born there and I grew up there and I went to Whitefish High School and then I went to the University of Montana. And so I consider myself a local. Yeah. <laughs> and even though I've lived in California for a long time. And so we thought, Let, let's create an event. And while we were doing this in June and July, of course, we thought things with the pandemic were going to move at a faster pace. And so now we're at a point where we realize that we just have to be patient and see what happens. But we essentially one day Sam created a route and we went out and did it. And we started going back to that route almost every week. And we took every friend that came to town out there and it's just so, so beautiful. And so that was the inspiration for the actual race part of it. No, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I hope to be there. So, I mean, that's, that's definitely one of those things that's on my, on my to-do list. Um, but yeah, it, it is interesting seeing these events and how they're handling things. I don't know if you, 
registered for Mid-South or not, but if you read how registering for Mid-South was going to go, it um, essentially like, you know, you're agreeing to, if you get selected, 50%. Like if they have to cancel due to COVID, like it's 50% at least. That's the only thing you'll get refunded. Mm -hmm. I was saying this at the beginning um, when I thought it was going to be over with in June. Um, And I don't know your thought on this, but like when it came to getting refunded, like I don't think people truly understand and I've never ran an event, but I don't think people truly understand what it takes to run an event. Like mm-hmm. how much money is getting spent before money actually hits a bank account. Um, and so it, it's, it's kind of scary. It's kind of wild. Yes. Um, so, but yeah, um, past that. So last big ride. Um, so, or last best ride. Um, what, what, what are the distances going to be? And what's the date on that? I think it's on my birthday, but um, August 22nd. Woohoo! Happy All birthday, right. John. Yeah. Yeah. Up there. Right on. So, um, so yeah, what are the distances and kind of what kind of style of event are you going for? Cause I feel like there's all kinds of different style of gravel events, right? So you mm-hmm. got, you got like SBT and you got mid South. Like, I feel like mid South, there is like a winning perspective there, but I don't think it's as big as like a, a DK, but even DK yeah. is kind of like not as big as an SBT. Cause like, I feel like winning DK, like if you're in that top echelon, that's great. But the other people behind all those people in the top echelon don't really care. Whereas like BWR, it's a race. Yeah. Like that's a race. Um, so what do you think, what do you think your ride's going to be categorized as? I mean, you've, you've spent the last, you know, couple months out there and you've probably just been cruising it, but what are you, how are you going to tackle it on August 22nd, John Croom's birthday, um, 2021? So, I mean, obviously I'm not going to be racing, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, hope, I don't even know if I'll feel to hang out with my friends. For sure. I have this idea that I'm going to have this whole race schedule leading into it, by the way, which yeah. everyone's like, no, that's not happening. But usually that just motivates me to Make get it, it happen. Definitely. So Amy charity does it. I know. And Amy's going to come to uh, the last best ride. Awesome. So I'm going to try to do uh, the Foco Fondo actually yeah. in Fort Collins, Whitney Zach's event at the end of July, okay. and then head to Rooted. And then probably head to Utah and work from there and train and get ready for SBT and then head back up to Whitefish. We'll Sweet. see. It's a very aggressive plan. But nonetheless, I, I think we're trying to define exactly the vibe. We know that we want a community-oriented event yeah. because Whitefish is such a tight-knit community. And that's what's special about bringing people into the community. I don't think it will ever have the same vibe as like a BWR but it's I mean you can't that race is just its own animal yeah well the cool thing about gravel is I feel like everybody has their vibe like SBT you know they have the announcers um what's his name is it Jim Miller yes announces yeah and so like you have that and then like mid-south you got Bobby right at mid-south and the, the whole um district bicycles family and then um you know past that and like leadville 
like it's got that whole Leadville family vibe. So, um, yeah, I think, I think everybody just kind of has their own, own vibe and creation. So it's kind of exciting to see. And I think that like gravel races, especially the last best ride, we understand that our course, like the top pros can be competitive on our course. And there's some local guys and gals that can be competitive, but it's also a course for the enthusiast. And that's what's neat about these events is that you can line up with a pro and be doing the same event and you don't need a license to do it. You just have to show up with a good attitude and it's just a way more approachable. I mean, we don't need to discuss this. It's why gravel's growing so much. And so I think with the last best ride, that'll be really important. We definitely have friends who are professional riders that we know will be coming to the event. And that will be really super fun for local people to build to ride with someone like Sarah Sturm. Or we have some pro chefs like Lentina Alexis is going to come. I'm really tapping into my group of female friends because for me, making this a really inclusive start line is important. I would love to see 50% female participation. Yeah. I think that would be super rad. I also, we're doing, we're doing some things a little bit differently and we're kind of feeling our way through it. We have big goals for inclusion and we have big goals for the community piece of the event, which I'll talk about in a minute. But I think with being in women's cycling for so long, you see how dysfunctional it is. And you see people just sort of feel hopeless. Like, how do we create equality? And how do we do this? And for me, at the end of the day, I think it's just trying something to activate um, and engage with women. And to be completely blunt, I think a lot of that is just giving up profit. I mean, you have to per, you have to put in monetarily a budget and a plan to support a platform like this. And so our idea going into the race when we wrote our budget was what can we do for to bring women to this event? And I don't just mean pro women. I mean women who are underrepresented in other populations and women who maybe are professionals off the bike, but wouldn't get to go to a race like this. And so that's not on our end, that's providing comp entries, but we're also working with some sponsors to hopefully have more of like a stipend or a grant to provide travel and accommodation. Wow. So it's a little early to announce anything, but it's an idea that's come up um, with one sponsor in particular where rather than saying, okay, let's put the money in our pocket, which automatically will go to something in the race. How do we make it about this, this piece of it instead? And so I'm, I'm really committed to growing this and I get so excited of what it could turn into and how it could really change the start line of gravel races. If other people look at this as an idea, this is a really good idea. And so we're, we're kind of running with this. Um, the other piece is obviously, you know, I grew up in whitefish and I had very humble background and, um, I come from a family that was, you know, financially disadvantaged. And I've talked about that a lot as a chef involved with chef cycle and no kid hungry in my experiences on that side as a kid 
who faced food insecurity. But the other piece to that was growing up and being in high school and understanding that college costs a lot of money. Yeah. But knowing, like my parents put it in my head, like college is something that you can do. I started applying for scholarships my sophomore year of high school. And there were a ton of local scholarships. I won a computer and I won over $17,000 in local scholarships that helped me go to college. And my dream has always been to create my own endowment and create my own scholarship. And so we're calling ours the Champion Scholar Award. And we're putting 20% of the proceeds from the race directly into that. And then we'll do some fundraising. We're having a welcome dinner and a fundraising dinner the Friday before the race and try to really build that. But we're, we think we'll start with two awards the first year and they will be for female high school students, uh, a local whitefish student. And we would like one to go to a native American student. So while the race doesn't actually go through any indigenous lands, we're surrounded by uh, the Blackfeet Nation and the Salish Kootenai Nation, and their heritage and cultural history should be celebrated. And also, we're working with some ways to include riders from those nations, Native Americans, and just really thinking about how, you know, how can we be leaders here? And, yeah. and how can we look at everybody and respect everybody and include them? And again, I think it's just doing it. Maybe yeah. I don't do it perfectly. Maybe Sam and I don't do it perfectly the first time around, but we're trying and our hearts are in the right spot. So that that's kind of, you know, the details about ha- those types of things with inclusiveness and, and the Scholar Award. But we're, we're just really, really excited that's that's awesome yeah like i think i think i think it's super cool not only are you guys trying to put a race together but what you're trying to bring out of it it's more than just a race yeah which which is awesome like uh we don't we don't really see that much anymore um and yeah i think it's always hard the first year uh it's definitely always going to be hard the first you know the, the first year after a pandemic hopefully you know so um, it's, people are so looking forward to just traveling places and, and that's the hook for Whitefish, right? Everyone wants to go to Whitefish and Glacier yeah. National Park. And I, I didn't answer your question about the courses. So I'll just quickly highlight the. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't even, I forgot. All so, that. <laughs> I got, I'm so excited about everything, but the, um, the short course is called the mountain goat. It's 48 miles with 4,800 feet of elevation gain. Whitefish sits at 3,000 feet, so it's actually like a nice mid-elevation. Both of the courses top out at 6,800 feet. The long course is called the Bighorn Sheep, and it's 78 miles and 8,700 feet of gain. Ooh. And I, we have all of the details up on our website, by the way, and we talk about the bike selections. We're allowing any type of bike. However, we really are discouraging a road bike. Montana gravel is not your fast maintained gravel. It's not technical from a standpoint of like big rock drop offs or roots, but it's definitely chunky and can be a lot slower. So a 78 mile course is going to be one in around six hours by the fast guys. It's not a super fast 
race. So if anyone's interested in looking at our website, we make recommendations for gear and bikes and just kind of tell you a little bit more about the race. We're also link having... in the, the description below on that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We're also having, like I said, Friday is an optional welcome dinner and fundraising night. Saturday, our expo will be held in downtown Whitefish with Great Northern Cycle and Ski. And that will roll into an evening block party with live music, food trucks, which will be really fun and low key. And then Sunday, the race day will also be in downtown Whitefish at a local park. And so the vibe will be really fun for families and supporters. And the race will go over the top of the ski resort, giving families an opportunity to take the scenic lift or to hike up and see racers and heckle on a section that is going to be very special. Awesome. <laughs> um, special in quotes yeah. <laughs> for racers. <laughs> so, um, and then the post-race celebration includes a local caterer called the Cuisine Machine. And he makes really, this is not your normal post-race food. Like as a chef, I couldn't just have burgers and french fries. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll have huckleberry ice cream, which is locally made, all kinds of really cool stuff. And then our prizes are all going to be special Montana made prizes. Awesome, man. That sounds like a blast. Sounds like a lot of fun. So before, before I let you go, before we, before we depart, I got to ask you one question and I don't, um, I don't really prep anybody for this question, but, um, so essentially, you know, we are called coffee and van chats. And so, we have to incorporate coffee into it in some way, shape or form. So if you could have a cup of coffee with one person, dead or alive, who would it be? Why? And how would you take your coffee? If you don't drink coffee, you can do tea, beer, however, whatever, whatever drink you like. But what would that beverage be? Who would it be with? And why? So my answer is probably really boring and simple. <laughs> no, it's fine. But I always take my coffee uh, and make a pour over every morning. All right. And I'm not super particular. I don't do it right, probably. I don't weigh anything, but... Does Sam give you a hard time for not weighing anything? Somebody's <laughs> giving you a hard time. That's why, you, that's why you're, you're yes. going in prepping it. <laughs> I know. And it's not Sam. He doesn't even drink coffee. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> right on. All right. So who would it be with? It would be with my little sister, Melody. Oh, yeah. Okay. We're really close. She's an emergency room veterinarian. She lives in Seattle and we only get to see each other sometimes once a year. And so when I think of someone that I'd want to spend a day with and talk to, it's always her. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Well, that's perfect. So guys, if you haven't already, please make sure you hit that subscribe button. Then after that, make sure you go check out Jess's social media as well as the last big ride. You can go check that out. It'll all be in the description below. Other than that, guys, thank you so much for listening. Jess, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Cheers.